This is Front Page. We here at Front Page, we do our best to dig out the truth and bring it to you. Hello, all you freedom-loving people. Welcome to Front Page Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Cameron Goulet. Hello, all you freedom-loving people. Welcome to another episode of Front Page. I'm your host, Scott Cameron Goulet. So, will the government shut down again after this weekend? The Speaker of the House says that he has a solution, but Democrats in the White House were slamming his proposal. House members were ready to spend the holidays in D.C., but suddenly... The Democrats in the Senate relented. It looks like everyone will be going home for the holidays. Nikki Haley's campaign is gaining momentum and has a good chance of overtaking Ron DeSantis. Do you remember the QAnon shaman? In the past two years, extensive media coverage has transformed him from an ordinary man into a celebrity. This has been a great help to him for his next plan. The U.S. Supreme Court issued its first ever code of conduct after facing heavy pressure from Senate Democrats for new ethics laws, House Republicans have subpoenaed former White House counsel Dana Remus for their investigation into Joe Biden's alleged mishandling of classified documents during his vice presidency. The Israeli military has finally found evidence to defend their actions in launching a military operation against a hospital in Gaza. Okay, let's get into it. The federal government is again faced with the question of whether or not to shut down. Funds from the last continuing resolution will expire this Friday on November 17th. On Saturday, the newly elected Speaker of the House announced a two-step temporary funding package aimed at averting a partial government shutdown. Mike Johnson's plan is to extend funding through January 19th for military construction, veterans' benefits, transportation, housing, urban development, agriculture, food and drug administration, and energy and water projects. Funding for all other federal actions will expire on February the 2nd. However, this interim program does not include any supplemental funding such as aid to Israel or Ukraine. Johnson said in a statement on Saturday, this two-step continuing resolution is a necessary bill to place House Republicans in the best position to fight for conservative victories. The bill will stop the absurd holiday season omnibus tradition of massive loaded up spending bills introduced right before the Christmas recess. The proposal was not viewed favorably and it was considered unlikely to win the support of the Democratic Party or the White House. White House aides were betting that Johnson would not be able to work out the temporary funding package. At first, the White House blamed the House Speaker for his proposal being confusing. House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries at the time described the Republicans' idea as another fast-moving joyride for far-right policies. Jeffrey also said that it would only serve to collapse and burn the federal government to the ground. Democrats worried that Republicans would prioritize party priorities like defense in the first stage, so they threatened to reject the proposal. But things took a turn for the better on Monday. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer began on Monday afternoon by saying that he would support the proposal. He said that he was pleased that Speaker Johnson chose not to seek spending cuts or policy riders in the spending package. Schumer said, House Republicans have produced a responsible measure. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell followed Schumer by expressing his support. McConnell said that the Senate still has a lot of work to do. 
McConnell also said, in addition to the remaining full-year appropriations bills, prominent national security priorities still need attention from Israel to Ukraine to the Indo-Pacific region to the U.S. southern border. The short-term appropriations bill that was introduced by House Republicans would provide time and space for Congress to complete the entire appropriations process. The Senate planned a procedural vote for Monday night in order to ready shell legislation that would include the continuing resolution. That vote was shelved with the Senate warming to Johnson's package. There's also broad support for this approach in the House of Representatives. House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries also changed his earlier tone and he hinted at possible support for the measure. On Monday, in a letter to all Democratic members of the House of Representatives, Jeffries did not say that the party's leaders were ready to support the continuing resolution, but he didn't rule it out either. He simply said that they were carefully evaluating the proposal and discussing it with lawmakers. This signals a dramatic change in tone of the House Democratic leadership. Rules Committee Chairman Tom Cole acknowledged on Monday afternoon that the House was discussing passing the resolution by suspending the rules. Under suspension of the rules, legislation requires the support of two-thirds of the House, which is a higher threshold for the passage of the continuing resolution. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley was clearly one of the beneficiaries of the November 8th debate. Her campaign's fundraising momentum continues to rise and she is poaching donors from her Republican rivals. Some donors who supported Florida Governor Ron DeSantis are now shifting to support Haley. Haley reportedly gained 250 donors in the third quarter, including billionaire Harlan Crow and Bruce Kovner of Caxton Alternative Management. Haley has jumped to second place in the polls in several early primary states. She won praise for her excellent debate from Ken Griffin, the founder and CEO of Citadel LLC, a multinational hedge fund firm. According to campaign finance filings, Haley's third quarter campaign featured 87 new donors who had previously contributed to DeSantis. By comparison, DeSantis lost far more donors than he scooped up. Texas Republican donor Jeremy Fielding initially endorsed South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, but he was unhappy with his performance in the first debate. Fielding said, I'm on Team Haley now. On Monday, Haley's campaign announced that it would book $10 million in television, radio, and digital ads in Iowa and New Hampshire during the first week of December. Those are the first two states where Republicans will vote. Jacob Chansley, the famed QAnon shaman, intends to enter politics. He has filed papers to run for Arizona State Legislature as a libertarian. Needless to say, one can only imagine the reaction of the Democrats and the media to this news. Despite the lack of evidence, these media outlets continue to call him a rioter. He's running in Arizona's 8th Congressional District next year. The district is currently represented by Debbie Lesko, who was a 64-year-old Republican. She announced last month that she would not seek re-election. Her term will officially end in January of 2025. Chansley was interviewed by Newsmax. In fact, he's very well-spoken and eloquent. He believes that his so-called bad name actually helps his political publicity. He does not need to spend money to get the limelight.
takes horns and face paint with no shirt to end up disrupting the establishment and the established uh, uh, corrupt politics in the dinosaur circus that we call D.C., then I'm fine with that. Don't you lose your credibility without the shirt? Well, I don't think so. None whatsoever. In my personal opinion, I think that it's um, a symbol uh, that I'm willing to bear all, that what people are getting with me is exactly, exactly what it is that I'm showing them that I'm not afraid. I'm not trying to paint some image the way that all these puppet politicians do. I'm not disingenuous in any way, shape, or form. I come bare-chested. I come in full regalia. This is who I am. This is what I represent. And guess what? I think that once people hear me speak, then they can and will want to vote for me. So will his status as a felon affect his campaign? According to the Associated Press, the U.S. Constitution does not prohibit felons from holding federal office, but Arizona law does prohibit felons from voting until they have completed their sentence and they have had their civil rights restored. Chansley himself thinks that this is not a problem. People are going to ask why should anyone from any party vote for a convicted felon who is accused of trying to destroy the very democracy you want to represent now? Do you have an answer for that? Oh, I tell them, first of all, we don't live in a democracy. We live in a constitutional republic. A democracy is two wolves and a lamb voting on what's for dinner. A republic is a well-armed lamb contesting the vote. And I would also say that, you know, the DOJ can call anybody or can, can convict anybody on anything. I believe it was Clarence Thomas that said the average American citizen breaks six federal laws a day. So our list of rules for the government is a page or two. It's called the Bill of Rights in the Constitution. But their list of rules for us are thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of pages at this point. Hence why, you know, the average American citizen breaks six federal laws a day. That's a problem. And so in my opinion, if you if the American people are looking for change, then I guarantee you they're not going to find it in the establishment. They're not going to find it in any of the people that are currently in Congress because those people are banking on keeping the status quo. That's how they keep their jobs. These people want yeah. careers in D.C. They it, don't want to make change. The Newsmax moderator then asked a sensitive question about whether Chansley blamed President Trump for his conviction. The answer to this question will be on Ganjing World. I'll leave the link in the description below. Um, Got to ask you about how you're viewing the current frontrunner for the GOP nomination. Of course, former President Trump, why uh, almost everyone who was there at the Capitol on January 6th was there to support Donald Trump. Uh, do you blame the former president for the prison sentence you faced or the fact that you showed up at the Capitol to begin with? No, no, I do not. And I think that any attempt to try to paint anything that happened on that day onto the president or try to paint him with that broad brush is just mockingbird media and corrupt DOJ talking points. Because the fact of the matter is the man said, peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Okay, so what we're talking about here is optics. 
And based on the Mockingbird Media and neurolinguistic programming, based on critical factor bypass and all that kind of psychological warfare, basically, you can paint anybody to be anything. So you could choose to look at me as a, a felon. You, I've heard people call me a traitor that's a threat to democracy, or you could choose to look at me as I am, a person that was maligned and skewered by a corrupt system, as so many hundreds of thousands of people have been in the United States, as so many January Sixers have been in the United States, and has Donald Trump has been in the United States of America. So I don't, I don't see the, the, pre yeah. the former president as responsible at all. Chansley concluded by saying that he is best suited to go to D.C. to represent the will of the people because he will not be bought and paid for. And that's why I should go to D.C., because I'm not going to be beholden to the NGOs. Oh, yeah. I'm not going to be beholden to lobbyists. I'm not going to be beholden to the deep state puppet strings. I will represent the American people the way they deserve to be represented. On Monday, the U.S. Supreme Court issued its first-ever code of conduct after facing heavy pressure from Senate Democrats for new ethics laws. The code includes a long list of guidelines for recusal from proceedings and criteria for financial, fiduciary, and other external activities. The Supreme Court said that it already followed existing rules that are derived from historic practice and other sources. However, recently, it has been believed that the Supreme Court justices regard themselves as unrestricted in their conduct. In fact, the push for an ethics code appears to be a response to a series of stories by the ProPublica news site. These stories detailed the relationship between conservative donor Harlan Crow and Justice Clarence Thomas. ProPublica also reported Justice Alito's Alaska fishing trip with a Republican donor. In addition, the Associated Press reported that Justice Sonia Sotomayor's office staff urged colleges and libraries to promote her latest book. The code states a justice should comply with the restrictions on acceptance of gifts and the prohibition on solicitation of gifts set forth in the Judicial Conference regulations on gifts now in effect. The code also states a justice should not to any substantial degree use judicial chambers, resources, or staff to engage in activities that do not materially support official functions or other activities permitted under these canons. Kerry Severino, the president of the Judicial Crisis Network, who also served as a clerk to Justice Thomas, questioned whether Senate Democrats would be satisfied by the court's move. Severino posted on X, I doubt this code will satisfy Senate Democrats and their liberal dark money backers as their campaign has never really been about ethics, but rather intimidating a court that it despises for being faithful to the Constitution. Common Sense, which is a left-leaning organization, posted on X, saying it doesn't go far enough. We need Congress to enforce a strong and binding code of ethics to restore trust in this court. Senate Democrats recently called for the recusal of Justice Alito and Justice Thomas for recent cases. Associates of both justices have been the subject of potential subpoenas by the Senate Judiciary Committee led by Senator Dick Durbin. The Senate Judiciary Committee is set to vote later this week on subpoenaing two Republican donors, Harlan Crow and Leonard Leo. These two donors are connected to Justice Thomas and Justice Alito.
House Republicans have stepped up their investigation into Joe Biden's alleged mishandling of classified documents during his vice presidency. In their most recent move, Representatives James Comer and Jim Jordan have subpoenaed former White House counsel Dana Remus in order to get a transcribed interview with her. Remus, who also served in the Obama administration, played a critical role in handling the boxes that contained classified documents at the Penn Biden Center on November 2nd, 2022. On November 13th, Comer stated, it is imperative to learn whether President Biden retained sensitive documents related to any countries involving his family's foreign business dealings that brought in millions for the Biden family. In addition, House Republicans wrote to Annie Tomasini, Anthony Bernal, Catherine Riley, and Ashley Williams asking for transcribed interviews. The November 13th letters note that the information they received could provide the basis for drafting impeachment articles against Joe Biden. The interview requests also coincide with the National Archives and Records Administration's, NARA's, third release of documents that are related to the transfer of Vice President Biden's records. The records released by NARA on November 13, 2023 date back to November of 2022. This is when the classified documents in the Penn Biden Center were first discovered. Mainstream media are reporting that Gaza's largest hospital, Al-Shifa Hospital, has run out of fuel and it is completely shut down, killing more than 30 patients in three days. The Israelis said that they delivered fuel to the hospital's doors, but Hamas refused to accept it. Meanwhile, the Israeli military has not stopped its offensive. They insist that there are Hamas tunnels under the hospital. Intelligence officials believe that when the Israeli soldiers enter the hospital, they would find Hamas tunnels and command posts underneath the hospital. This would be the clearest evidence of Hamas terrorist activities. And then on Monday, the IDF and its battle tanks advanced to the gates of the hospital, and sure enough, they did find the evidence. On Monday, the IDF released video footage from Gaza of the tunnel system. I'm here in Gaza City. We are here next to a house of a terrorist. This is one of the senior terrorists who is the head of the operational naval operations that led the raids into Israel. His house is right next to a, to a school. His house is 200 yards from the hospital, the hospital of Rantisi. Next to his house, there is a tunnel. In the video, IDF spokesperson Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari walks through one of Hamas's subterranean terrorist tunnels only to exit in Gaza's Rantini Hospital on the other side. Now I want to show you an operational tunnel. The tunnel is built with electricity. We first saw the solar panels, then the electricity goes here and it goes down directly to the tunnel. Now you can see the tunnel. You can see the tunnel. The tunnel is led down more than 20 meters down. The robot found a door, a door that is bulletproof, it's, uh, it's explosive proof, so it looks like a hard evidence, a clear evidence that the hospital direction is connected. This is a cover tunnel. It's part of the same floor and it slides down here. So it's a cover tunnel so nobody can find it. The Shin Bet, which is Israel's national security agency, told the New York Times 
that the underground was dug several stories deep and it contains meeting areas, living space and storage facilities for at least a few hundred people. It also has electricity and water with power drawn from the hospital. An earlier report in the UK Times presented circumstantial evidence that since 2014, hospitals have been frequently chosen as the venue for Hamas's public media events. While it's nominally to draw attention to the medical situation in Gaza, the reality is that they are headquartered underneath the hospital. The Israeli military found a large amount of weapons and ammunition in the basement of the hospital. We are now in the area of the basement of the hospital. I want to show you a room where we found all the gear, the operational gear of Hamas. Hamas is using hospitals, like we showed the evidence in Shifa Hospital, in other hospitals. We are now seeing it in live in Rantisi Hospital. An operation still conducting right now. Look at what Hamas is holding inside the hospital. I want you to understand. This kind of gear is a gear for a major fight. These are explosives. These are vests, vests with explosives. Yeah, it's a body vest for terrorists to explode on forces. Among hospitals, among patients, we have hand grenades, Kalachnikovs, and then we have the RPGs. People shooting RPGs from hospitals. This is Hamas firing RPGs for hospitals. The Israeli military video reveals that it appears hostages have also been held in the basement of the hospital. We are now in the basement, and in this basement we found a motorcycle. They were all used in the massacre of the 7th of October. They even have bullets in this motorcycle. So they came back from the massacre on the 7th of October, into Rantisi Hospital, with hostages on a motorcycle. We're still researching this. Yards from here, we find the chair, a woman, clothes, and a rope. A rope next to the legs. And look above this, look above it. It's a baby bottle. It's a baby bottle in a basement above a World Health Organization sign. This is a suspicion for an area where hostages were being held. The Times also cited a report by Amnesty International alleging that Hamas has used hospital rooms, such as visiting rooms, as holding cells to interrogate, torture, and otherwise mistreat suspects. At this point, however, these claims remain speculative, and the Israeli army will have to come up with actual evidence in order to substantiate such claims. Okay, this is our podcast for today. Thank you again for listening to Front Page Podcast. For more exclusive in-depth content, please go to frontpageshow.com.